A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John. My name is Dylan. And this is episode 139, where we are covering the miniseries Joker's Last Laugh. So, as uh, you guys might have realized if you're regular listeners, we uh, used to do the summary. We've bypassed that. Go read the book. It's We'll talk about it as we uh, go on and at the end to give our rating. But this is one, spoiler alert, we really liked. So... In lieu of the uh, summary, we're going to talk about Education Alley. So the first thing we have is the secret files and origins. You have this the villain Chiller changing into Jack Nicholson, Superman, Marilyn Monroe, and someone who says, Can you dig it, baby? John did the research on this, and he found a song from 1969, Grazing in the Grass by the Friends of Distinction, that had the lyric in it. But if you drop the baby off of it, it is a speech from The Warriors by Cyrus, who is played by Roger Hill. The scene is likely where the wrestler Booker T picked up the catchphrase as well. Can you dig it? Yeah, that's another one from our childhood, isn't it? Yeah, Booker T, yeah. yeah that's like that's 80s, mid, 90s, mid-90s, mid-90s, late-90s, maybe? Maybe. I'll have to look it that up. It was WCW, at least, in the mid-90s. And then once WCW folded, he was uh, absorbed into WWE along with... Most of the other WCW wrestlers. But that was mid-2000s, I want to say, early to mid-2000s. Yeah, that was about the time I stopped paying attention to wrestling. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that it was either WWF or went back when it was WWF or WCW. He was definitely WCW when I was watching in the mid-90s, but he may have also started in WWF. There were a number of people who started there, then went over to WCW, then came back. And... I'm taking your word because I honestly can't remember. <laughs> Uh, wrestling was a, a fun enjoyment for me in my uh, early teens. Oh, same here, you know. It's the the bigger-than-life than characters. You know, that kind of transfers well to superhero comic books, doesn't it? Does. It does. It's kind of like a real-life superhero show. Kind of, yeah. Feats of amazing strength, and and especially with the early-on Undertaker, the mythic and mystic stuff. Kane yeah, Undertaker well. and Kane, right? Yeah. The Attitude Era with Stone Cold, Triple H, D-Generation X, yeah. Undertaker, Kane. Yeah, that was that was still, to me, the best era. Same here. Or at least of the ones that I saw. I wasn't alive, obviously, for some of the earlier stuff. The, the early Hulk and Macho Man. and uh, Yeah, I was a baby for like those early WrestleManias. <laughs> uh, what's the one guy? Uh, War of the Kilt. Rowdy Roddy, oh, Roddy, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper, yeah. <laughs> and Jake the Snake. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I saw those people towards the end of their career, but not never. Yeah, never in their prime. Yeah. Okay, now that we've taken a detour down uh, Booker T. Lane, <laughs> uh, we'll go on to our next one here, which also comes from that uh, issue, and it is the term Poindexter, which is a term for a nerd. This originated in the Felix the Cat cartoon, which had a nerdy character with the same name. It's also a pretty common last name in the United States, originally from the island of Joysey. Joysey? Joysey Shore. So you have to figure Jersey being you know on that East Coast is probably home to a lot of immigration and early on like industrial era so i almost wonder is that like a german name germanic or 
It kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like it very well could be. And this is just speculation. So, of course, Poindexter, uh, Dexter's Laboratory. That's Dexter. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that all derives from that same term. Yeah. All right, so in issue two, this is the first appearance of Rancor. In issue three, we have the Easter Easter Island Mayoi. These are monolithic human figures carved by the Rapa Nui people on the Chilean Polynesian island of Easter Island between the years 1250 and 1500 CE, or Common Era. Nearly half are still at Rano Raraku, the main Maui quarry, but hundreds were transported from there and set on stone platforms called Ahu around the island's perimeter. Almost all Maui have overly large heads, three-eighths the size of the whole statue. The Maui are chiefly the living faces of deified ancestors. The production and transportation of the 887 statues are considered remarkable creative and physical feats. The tallest Maui erected, called Paro, was almost 10 meters or 33 feet high and weighed 82 tons. The heaviest erected was a shorter but squatter Maui at Ahu Tongariki, weighing 86 tons. And one unfinished sculpture, if completed, would have been approximately 21 meters or 69 feet tall and weighed about 270 tons. Wasn't it just a few years ago when they discovered that they had bodies? I always thought they were just heads, but... No, like they did some excavation. They found bodies, I want to say. So it kind of got buried after a while? Yeah, either it was buried or they used the bodies as like anchors, but they had bodies. Which is, you know, kind of crazy. Like, there's just, just the amount of stonework that had to go into that. Yeah, just the skill and the, the the amount of manpower to move them. Oh, God, yeah. Like, that's a lot. Of... I mean, mostly we think of the pyramids when we think of that, but this, I'd say, would be up there as nearly an equal feat of human engineering. I, I think the pyramids are a little larger. Well, they're larger, but, I mean, just as far as, like... <laughs> The, 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 process the skill of and the, the process of getting them put together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's agreed. That's kind of crazy, you know. All right, so we're moving on to Pagliacci, means clowns in an Italian opera in a prologue and two acts with music and libretto by Ruggiero Leon Cavallo. Cavallo. I think it's. I think it's L. I think it's L. two L's. Is is L in in uh, Italian? Italian. Okay, so. Once again, I apologize for butchering that. It is the only Leon Cavallo opera that is still widely staged. It is often staged by opera companies as Double Bill with Cavalleria Rustic- Rusticana by Mascagani, known as Cav and Pag. Now, Pagliassi, isn't that from... Uh, didn't we see that in Watchmen? Um, or is that Paglissini? We might have seen it in Watchmen. It's, it's the, you know, the, the joke... That Rorschach ta- tells. Right, because Rorschach, or the comedian, it, yeah. it was probably in relation to the comedian if we did see it in Watchmen. Yeah. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Yeah, me either. I'm trying to remember it now. Our, our next one here is uh, Joker has baby's breath flowers delivered to Gordon. And I did some research on this, and as best that I can tell, uh, baby's breath can be used as a symbol of purity and innocence. And I'm pretty sure that Joker did this to remind Gordon that Sarah was an innocent bystander from No Man's Land. I'd say either Sarah or uh, Barbara from Joker's... I think the note had something about Sarah on it. You couldn't read the whole note, but I think it had Sarah on it. Okay, then yeah, definitely. But it also could be related to Barbara as well. 
it, you know, I, I'd have to relook it because I'm I'm sure you're right. I'm not doubting you, but if it had Sarah on there, then it's definitely a reference to No Man's Land, which we covered. What was it? A few episodes back? Um, about a year ago. About a year ago. Jeez. <laughs> Next one we have is this is the first appearance of Carnivora. Yeah, in issue three, and uh, that was one of the aliens in the slab. Okay, so there you go. Um, in issue four, we have uh, Joker orders his men to go Lee Harvey Oswald on President Luther. Lee Harvey Oswald is the man who assassinated President John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas. All right. So, yeah, that's uh, my hometown there. <laughs> that's uh, an ignominious distinction for your town. Uh, amongst other things. But, yeah, no, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. And this, of course, was a... Uh, pretty widely you know conspiracy theory theorists use that one a lot uh the, yeah they the try and say theory. there's a second gunman and, and everything there's a couple really good documentaries out there if you track them down on the uh on john f kennedy and i i, I can't remember where i saw it is it on one of those like modern warfare shows or something like that on one of the history channel shows that's not ancient aliens <laughs> i'm not saying it was aliens but aliens killed john f. i'm kennedy. not saying there were aliens in this story <laughs> but, but they're aliens, aliens. So, uh, and they had someone, I don't remember who, but some like expert marksman gunman who was able to fire a shot. They, you know, did a simulation uh, for the shot and all that. He was able to fire the shot, reload because a bolt action rifle and take a second shot. So it's one of those things that it can be done. And Lee Harvey Oswald, I want to say he was a infantryman in the army. I can't remember all of his backstory, but he was rumored to be tied in with um, the KGB and so the, Soviets and that, all that that's, stuff. That's part of the conspiracy. Yeah, that's theory. part of the conspiracy. I'm talking about like hard fact here. He was yeah. like, he was but a, I'm pretty sure he had some sort of military. Yeah, background. He, he was former military, and he's. I want to say he was a combat arms MOS. So MOS being basically the job in the army. Sorry, John and I are both veterans. So yeah, they give you a two two number and a letter designation for your job title. Yeah, and so, that's uh, MOS. So he's a. Uh, he was, I'm, I want to say he was an infantry guy. I don't have it right in front of me, so I don't want to you know, misspeak. But I almost want to say he had sniper training, too. He might have. I, and this is, once again, this is me trying to remember stuff. And as everyone who listens to this regularly knows, my memory is notoriously bad. So, you know. But again. Uh, worth researching. Yeah. It's very, you know, in all honesty, even if you're not so much a history buff, this is really interesting history. This is something that happened in American history that's worth reading up on and worth researching. And it's relatively recent history, so you can get yeah. a lot of information on it. Yeah. So look it up, guys. Be more smarter. All right, next one we have is Joker tries to say two motivational sayings. The first is cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. The phrase is found in Act 3, Scene 1 of Julius Caesar. Havoc is a military order permitting the seizure of spoil or treasure or whatever they seize after a victory. And that part I did not know. I knew that that was a phrase from Shakespeare. Yes. So it's, it's a, uh, basically, and, and a lot of times you saw this in like World War II, and Simpsons had an episode on it about World War II, where uh, re- revolving around Grandpa Simpson, Abe Simpson, during World War II. Uh, and there's a, they, they seize a whole bunch of German paintings after like taking over a town. And the keeping of war trophies is is directly prohibited by the Geneva Convention. Just in case anybody was curious why that's a big deal. 
So this, of course, comes from Julius Caesar, so that era. So this will probably a little less. A little bit before the uh, Geneva Convention. A little bit. Only a couple, what, hundred years or so. The second one is win one for the Gipper. Do this in memory of somebody you revere. Attributed to Newt Rockney, coach of the Notre Dame football team, during a halftime pep talk in the 1928 Army-Notre Dame football game. Rockney told his team that a former player, George Gipp, had said on his deathbed, Rock, someday, when things look real tough for Notre Dame, ask the boys to go out there and win one for me. The incident was made famous by the movie in which Ronald Reagan played George Gipp. Before he was president. Yes, before he was president when he was just an actor. Ronald Reagan, the actor? <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, you have that, of course. Uh, he was actually, he's also the head of the Actors Union. Ronald Reagan The was. Screen Actors Guild? Yeah. I did not know that. So that's how him and uh, Nancy met, is she was, a lot of people were being blacklisted, and she went to him. So... It was during the McCarthy days. Ah, uh, yes, the McCarthy uh, era. Uh, what was it? Uh, Red, Red Scare, Soviet hunt. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have covered that in, in a, another episode, I'm sure. Yeah, I think we talked about that in one of our other podcasts. It was podcasts. Captain America Winter Soldier. Yes, Arc Reactions podcast. Go give it a listen. It's an early episode. It's a really good one. Um, also in this issue, we have the first appearance of Stormfront. In issue five, we have reference to Jiminy Cricket. This is the Walt Disney version of the talking cricket, Italian Il Grio Parlante. 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 It's a fictional character created by Carlo Collodi for a children's book, The Adventures of Pinocchio, which Disney adapted into the animated film Pinocchio in 1940. Originally an unnamed minor character in Collodi's novel, he was transformed in the Disney version to a comical and wise partner who accompanies Pinocchio on his adventures. Though called Cricket, he is depicted as a grasshopper instead, being that crickets are black or drawn brown with very long antenna, and uh, Jiminy was drawn green. Since his debut in Pinocchio, he has become a recurring iconic Disney character and has made no- numerous other appearances. Very popular, you know, a lot of people know Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, that's definitely a um, character that I'm familiar with from my childhood growing up on Disney movies. Yeah, I have to wonder, though. I mean, he's become such a uh, mainstay for Disney. I wonder how many people don't even know that he's from Pinocchio, of a younger generation who didn't really grow up with Pinocchio. I, su- I would assume it depends where you first saw him, because a lot of times wherever you first see something is what you associate it with. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, was he, you know, does the Disney, because I don't really watch the Disney Channel. So I can't really speak to it, but I think he makes appearances on the Disney Channel like as their commercials and stuff. I have no idea. I haven't watched the Disney Channel since about the same time I was watching wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> um, in issue six, we have the Shackleton Ice Shelf. This is where the slab ended up at the end of the story. Um, this is an extensive ice shelf fronting the coast of East Antarctica for about 384 kilometers, projecting seaward about 145 kilometers in the western portion and 64 kilometers in the eastern portion. It occupies an area of 33,820 square kilometers. It is part of the Mawson Sea and separates the Queen Mary coast to the west from the Knox coast of Wilkes land to the east. The existence of this ice shelf was first made known by the USEE under Charles Wilkins, or, or excuse me, Charles Wilkes, who mapped a portion of it from the Vincennes in February 1840. 
It was explored by the Australian Antarctic Expedition under Douglas Mawson, who named it for Sir Ernest Shackleton. And now we have all the names of the geographic locations and the people they're associated with. The extent of the ice shelf was mapped in greater detail in 1955 using aerial photography obtained by the U.S. Navy Operation High Jump in 1946-47. to 47. Further mapping by the Soviet expedition of 1956 showed the portion eastward of Scott Glacier to be part of this ice shelf. Shackleton floated on this ice shelf for months, and he was the guy it was named for. So yeah, that's kind of interesting, a little history. It's, uh, you know, Antarctica was a very widely explored, and as widely as, as it has been explored, there's still a lot that we don't have mapped. Yeah, and it's got permanent uh, research stations on there that have people that go in and out um, various times in the year. And they do have a season. I watched a documentary on this. They do have a season where almost everybody leaves, and there's like a skeleton crew there that just kind of maintains it until um, it's kind of their winter season, I guess, maintains it until the people are ready to come back and continue their research. That's kind of interesting. I mean, that'd be a really inhospitable environment to research in, but... The, the data you could get from it, it's probably pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Considering how cold it is, you probably do some really, really interesting experiments. Yeah, the, the documentary was more about the people that stayed and kind the of skeleton. maintained everything over over the time period when the researchers weren't there, so they weren't really talking about what they were researching. Do you recall what the documentary was called? I do not. Ah, John. <laughs> All right, so in Action Comics 784... Clark tells Bruce what happened in Emperor Joker, and Bruce gets mad at him. Bruce says he built his life on pain and it motivates him. He finally says that it was bad enough that Superman had to take his pain, then he won't be able to keep it bottled up forever. So, And the reason uh, this was included in Education Alley is this is one of the tie-ins that uh, is not part of the, the miniseries, but does have a callback to Emperor Joker, which is one of the stories that we've covered. Yeah, so, and, and I never, that's another thing, you know, I keep saying it, I think I said it at the same time, I don't understand how Batman was able to transfer memories to Superman, I don't know if that's one of those, like, Superman 2 movie superpowers where you had, like, all sorts of weird stuff going on. Wasn't it the Spectre? Oh, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. That's, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, so the Spectre, uh, um... Transferred? Yeah, uh, as facilitated, there we go, that's yeah, the word yeah, that's I'm a good word. For. That's a good word. Yeah, facilitated the transfer from Bruce to, to Superman. And that actually leads right into uh, our first and only bad thing for this story, which is the tie-ins. They just seem so unnecessary. They didn't add to the story. Now, in defense of them, they did show some lesser-known heroes and kind of you know brought back some of those kind of Golden Age-style heroes and villains to face off as in reference to the villains being Joker-gassed. Yeah, I mean, th- there were just too many of them. Like, yeah, there were a, a few, um, as we mentioned there with Action 784, and then there's another one we're going to talk about later in the talking points that, that really ties into the continuity that we've been covering. But other than those few that added some data to the story, like, for instance, the story of Polaris uh, becoming the South Pole that was in one of the tie-ins, yeah. that it's just mentioned in the main story, but it's explored more in a tie-in. Other than those few ones that added something to it, there were just a ton that did not really add anything. And there were a lot of them also that were just this, their story, and then they ran into a villain with 
uh, Joker gas for a couple pages in the story. So you're spending 19 out of the 20 some pages focused on whatever story that title is telling and not really focused on anything to do with this story. Yeah. If I was trying, if I was a buying comic books at this point, and I was trying to keep up with this story. I'd be rather annoyed at how many tie-ins I bought thinking that they were part of the story and really weren't. It's wasted money. Well, yeah, and this was 2001, 2002, so the internet wasn't quite as in-depth as it is now. Like, now you could go and uh, find a good reference that would probably tell you, buy these three tie-ins that, that add something to the story and ignore the rest. But at that time, yeah, you you would kind of feel like you need to buy all these tie-ins. And then, yes, I would be very frustrated. And my first read through this, I read through it in in a reading order with all the tie-ins. And it it read so slowly trying to read all those tie-ins with the main story. And my second read through, I just read the story and it was uh, much, much better. Yeah, I was in the same boat. I was really, really ready to give it a really bad rating when I was reading it with all the tie-ins and everything. And I even found myself just flipping pages and not even paying attention, just trying to get to the story. There were a couple where I was like, I can tell this is not going to have any relevance to this at all. I'm just going to skim through it. Yeah, so, yeah, the the tie-ins were just too many and didn't add anything for the most part, except for a small number of them. So, yeah, the tie-ins are a bad one. We do have something that's kind of a bad point, in, but in the good points. So Yeah, it, there's there's some aspects to the plot that we'll get to when, when we get to that good point that uh, we can't overlook. But for the most part, we feel like the plot is a good point. So, so we'll move on to our, our good points Which here. are numerous. <laughs> which, yes, we have much more in the way of good things to say. The first one I wanted to talk about is examining the question, why don't they just kill the Joker? And this is a question that's been asked a few times. Uh Oracle, Nightwing, and Batman all go through this in various ways. Each member has their moment of wanting to kill him and are all talked down by other members of the Bat family. Um, Oracle was the first one that we see. Oracle brings up the question of how many lives would be saved if they just killed this one man. And that's kind of the point that usually always comes up because the Joker, as as we know from having covered uh, several of, of his stories... He always has a pretty high body count with yeah. with whatever he's doing. And it's it's kind of necessary in order to have him be the foil that he is, um, kind of the Moriarty now with Snyder's uh, interpretation of him. But no. Snyder does a good job. Yeah, but it's so different from the Joker that we've been reading in the, in the pre-Flashpoint stories <laughs> that we've been covering. Um, yeah, but is that necessarily a bad thing? And I don't want to get too far off topic, but having the Joker's always been portrayed by different people different ways, for better or for worse. Yeah, and this is this one, I think, I don't know, do we talk about it later? I don't know if we do. Um, he seems smarter than other depictions of the Joker to me. Like, he seemed definitely more science-based. Like, he, he kind of figured out that, um, which we'll talk about in the plot, um, that he figured out that the, the chemicals that, that the slab was using when combined would make Joker gas. So he seems smarter in this than, than other depictions of the Joker. He seemed more calculating um, and everything like that. So, uh, But we're kind of jumping ahead there. Um, but yeah, he even no matter what interpretation it is, except for maybe the animated series, he always leaves a lot of bodies in his wake. And that's what makes him, A, so terrifying, and B makes this question come up all the time because he's really one of the only villains where 
you know it's going to be really bad when they show up. Exactly. And, you know, the the question always is always answered by where would it end if they made an exception for killing the Joker? I mean, the the Joker, the blood the Joker spills is on the hands of every single member of the Bat family who doesn't put him down, basically. That's what Oracle is saying. Yeah, and I'm Oracle. not so sure that I agree with that. Maybe not every single, but at what point do you put him back in prison? He breaks out. It, it's the same thing over and over. And that not 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 in a this is a repetitive story way. And the the Joker has an mo. The Joker ha- he has a thousand mos. But when you put the Joker away, you know he's going to break out, and you know he's going to cause havoc. I mean, some of that is is just the nature of of the type of stories we're in. Like, he has to break out in order for there to be another Joker story. So it's somewhat, it's somewhat, you have to kind of uh, disassociate the the method of telling comic stories from what actually happens in the comic stories. One thing I did like about this particular story is he was in a different place. He was in the slab, which is a place we haven't seen him before. Yeah. So he was in a different prison, and... The prison probably would have held him, except for some things that happen that we'll talk about when we get to the plot. And some of them are machinations by the Joker. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not just like coincidence, although a lot of it is coincidence, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll, said, we'll talk about more about that. So I did like that aspect, though, that, that he is in a different place this time, so it isn't quite the same old it, thing. He's not back in Arkham, where he's escaped a thousand times. Or Blackgate. Or Blackgate, or any other prison that he's been in before. Right. Which does actually get, as we mentioned, gets moved to the South Pole, which is kind of, you know, that's kind of a good way to keep them locked away. So Oracle brings up an interesting point there as well, that she says that they could step aside and let someone else kill him. And what about the uh, the ethics of that? Like, obviously, the we're kind of saying that they can't um, go against their no-killing policy for this one person because that kind of creates a slippery slope for the Bat family of... Well, if someone gets up to the same um, body count or uh, potential body count of the Joker, do they make another exception for that person as well? If they do make an exception for the or, Joker, you know, at what point does at what point is the body count high enough? Is killing two people a high enough body count to justify it? Is killing fifteen? Is killing one person enough to justify a body count like that? Right. I, it, that's the slippery slope argument of where do you draw the, that line if you are going to say that it, it's okay to kill certain people but not other people. But but the, the ethics of allowing someone else to be killed, then you have a killer on your hands. Then you have to punish the person who killed the Joker because they're a murderer. So is it like that uh, invasive species thing where you have uh, this, this species eating all your crops, so you bring in a predator to that species, which eats all the species eating your crops, but then you have a problem with that species, yeah, so you got to bring in another species to rat, eat that species? You bring in cats. The cats get out of hand. You bring in dogs. The dogs get out of hand. You have to bring in elephants. You know, at, at what, Then you have an elephant infestation, and that's just all sorts of bad. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want to... Elephant infestation. No, you don't want to find find a present by an elephant. No, God, no. Hey, manure. <laughs> yeah, that'll last you a while. Yes, it will. All right. So, yeah, and that's that's a really hard question and to answer. It's the morality is even worse there because you're you're allowing someone to do your dirty work and then punishing them for doing your dirty work. And then I think it's Nightwing brings up that if they were to kill the Joker, wouldn't that just be a revenge killing? And so then Oracle posits that what they're doing, at least for Bruce and uh, Dick, is revenge because they were hurt by someone. 
before, which led them into the costumed uh, crusade that they're on. It was a few stories back. I think it was Officer Down where Alfred said to Bruce, while well, you know, he, he Bruce was at uh, uh, Commissioner Gordon's bedside after Commissioner Gordon had been shot. He said he better not die. And Alfred and his wonderful British snarkiness, which I love that depiction, was like something along the lines of, what, if he dies, will you dress up as a bat and stalk the night for criminals? You know, that's, it's true. It's Batman is motivated by vengeance. Batman is... Or if you believe Action 784, by pain. By pain and vengeance. Uh, but but regardless, you know, Oracle is 100% right. You know, he's just, it, it's a justification. He's trying to justify it to himself why they do what they do. And he can say it's for justice. He can say it's for, you know, to fight criminals and make sure it never happens to anybody else. But he's just, you know, doing doing it out of, out of anger and vengeance for his parents. Right. And I think what the, the point she's trying to make is how is that any different than if they were to just go out and take the Red Hood for instance, let's take yeah. that Red Hood's example and and use Lethal Force or Huntress's example. Yeah, two very valid examples, and you know that, that's a really good point. It, what's to stop them if they do go out and just kill the Joker? What's to stop them from killing Two Face? Two Face always has a body count. Riddler has a body count. Penguin has a body count by by proxy of his gangs and gangland affiliations. Killer Croc definitely has a body count. Mm-hmm. Scarecrow has a body count. If if not a body count, then at least people who are severely traumatized and create uh, almost could be considered a fate worse than death in trauma yeah, like and trauma and PTSD, psychological uh, torture. Yeah. So these are all guys who do horrible things. Why not take them out? Why not you know end that problem there? Related to that is is it not revenge if you don't kill? And I think that's kind of what we're what we've kind of been dancing around here for the past couple minutes of just um there's so they're doing more. revenge batman and, and nightwing are doing revenge just they're not going to the ultimate end of revenge their revenge is to put the criminals in a way but and and that's still revenge revenge isn't necessarily lethal it's revenge it could be you know taking them out of their their mode of life it could be something far worse it could be killing their loved ones in retaliation you know to take it to an extreme and you know, like John, you and I both play Dungeons and Dragons. We have a Dungeons and Dragons group we're in. Killing killing someone is vengeance. Having someone's life destroyed is also vengeance. You know, completely just ruining them. It's still vengeance. You don't kill them. Maybe they kill themselves. Maybe you drive them to kill themselves. You didn't kill them technically. Pro- by proxy, you kind of did. That's that's what we call evil. <laughs> that's on right. the evil evil alignment chart. Killing it can be, you know, killing someone for revenge can be anywhere from good. A paladin can do that. A good paladin can do that because it's what they have to do. But if you do something like I mentioned, that's evil. That's just there's no good about that. <laughs> right. And uh, to bring another example, um, comparison example, in, I, I want to bring up Minority Report. Good movie. Because yeah, show. it is a very good movie. Um, I have not read the source material that it's based off of. I would like to at some point. You know, there's a show out now. Um, I did. Out. Yeah, I, I haven't. I've watched a little bit of it. it looks intriguing. Yeah, I, I was kind of steered away by the network it's on. A uh, good fair. Um, but, Fox. Yeah. Um, 
But the the reason you can't I want to take the sky from me. <laughs> the reason I wanted to bring up um, Minority Report the movie is because it takes a really good exam uh, examination of this topic that we're talking about with the idea of pre-crime. True, very true. And having these uh, precogs, the precognitives who can sense motive and get a vision, uh, not necessarily always perfect as we see by the plot of that movie because someone is framed uh, using the precogs. But they get a, a vision of the events that are going to happen, and then someone goes out and arrests the person before it can happen. So basically, therefore, they're punishing someone for a crime they would commit, but before they could commit it. So in, in essence, it's pre-revenge, or pre-venge. if you don't want to call it revenge because you want, and you want to call it justice, which is in that instance is probably a better, yeah, a a, a better uh, term for it because you don't, you're not reacting to something that's happened. You're... You're preventing that from happening, but you're also still punishing the person for something that they were going to do. They haven't done. So is that, you know, an old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. In a lot of cases, yes. And and the, the question of, you know, you do definitely, as you're bringing up, you're getting to the question of morality of arresting someone for something they haven't done. And it could be, you know, there's, of course, the, the theory of chaos where one thing can set someone off. Maybe they trip that day. They don't get splashed by that car, you know, that puddle on the side by a car driving through them. They don't get enraged. They don't go home and take it out on their loved one. They don't act, they don't kill their loved one. They'd never committed the crime. So you, you have to question the, and as you said, in the movie, someone gets framed. So that that one instance of someone getting framed throws a wrench into the cogs of the entire work. How accurate is it? How if it's not one hundred percent accurate, then how can you justify using it? Right, and also the idea of thought crime is is also I think one of the bigger ish, um, things you're supposed to come away from that movie with is that if I think about hitting you in the face, is that the same thing as? me acting on that thought and hitting you in the face. And oh, no, no, it's not. Like, there's times I want to hit people and I don't. Hit I'm sure them. you've wanted to hit me more than a few times in the face. <laughs> but you, you see what I'm getting at. You, is, you see how he didn't answer, Roddy? Do you see how he didn't say no? Remember that. If I die, it's all John. <laughs> Go to John first. This is my last will and testament. Um, but but you, you you can definitely see the the problems there because many, the normal people, let's say, I mean, I, I don't want to, Get too general generalized about it, but the people who who can control their emotions and, and and such have these sort of reactions to things. Not necessarily all the time, but often enough that they would never never act on. So, at what point do you get like? It, it, and I'll bring this all back around to the, to the Batman story in a second. But at what point is it enough to? introduce some sort of of uh, preemptive measure like at what point is it okay they're thinking about it they're still thinking about it okay they've crossed the line of now they're definitely going to do this so now we have to intervene yeah and, and how do you gauge that and judge that how is that measured uh, yeah so basically now if we bring that in, into this batman story if they take this preventative measure of taking out the joker before he can commit something what if I mean, I know this is not the case because we're dealing with comic books, but what if he went through some sort of um, treatment program and was completely rehabilitated, and then it looks like he's going to do something, and then you snatch him up and put him, lock him away for something he looks like he was going to do, not necessarily kill him, because obviously we've kind of established that that's a line that, that the Bat family does not want to cross, 
but you, you see where see how this is a very difficult oh, yeah, yeah, topic um even even if you had the ability to stop them ahead of time with non-lethal me- methods and you had a way to hold them and, and everything like that yeah once again to bring up um uh, officer down there's the entire speech by commissioner gordon at the beginning of the book about the police the the, the key being the symbol of the police the the ability to take away someone's freedom, the fundamental freedom, by lock and key. And that, that comes back, you know, it's, it's trusted in the hand of the Gotham police for better or for worse. Uh, a lot of times worse because it's a corrupt organization. And, you know, it, abuse of that power, it comes very easily. And the you have to justify locking someone up in the, the court of law. You have to justify taking away their freedom. So it becomes even more of a murky subject when you interject that, when you realize that point. It becomes very, very murky. And, and I mean, this is this is obviously a fictional look at a question that we've had in reality, um, a couple of fictional looks, actually, yeah. if you include Minority Report, of a question we've had in reality of... I'm, there's many people who've, who've thought this through and been like, how do we prevent crime? Like, how, how do we... It seems like we're always reacting. It seems like we can't do anything until someone commits the act, and by then it's too late. So, I mean, it, it, this is this is definitely not the the first time that this this question has come up. But I think this is a really good look at it in in the Batman universe. And the last one that we want to talk about here, and the reason I left it for last, is because Nightwing does actually act on it. He kills the Joker. Or we're we're told he kills the Joker, and then the Joker's resuscitated. I mean, he's he's not dead for more than a few seconds. a few seconds. Yeah, Bat- isn't it like Batman brings him back or something? Um, Batman and Huntress, I think, were standing yeah, over yeah. him when he when he came to. So it's not quite. Uh, we're not shown who who did yeah. the actual but act. One but, of the two, yeah. and Batman kind of admonishes Nightwing a little bit for killing the Joker. It, not to his face, but he says he has to live with that now. Right. Uh, I think it's. Was it Batman? Somebody said let him go because someone was going to go try and talk to him. I'm pretty sure it was Batman. Okay, yeah. I, I can't remember who said <laughs> that. But let's set the scene here just real briefly. So Tim is lost, presumed Drake, dead. Who Tim is Drake, Robin. He's Robin, yeah. He's lost, presumed dead. And this sends Nightwing off into this murderous rage. And so he goes to where the Joker is kind of holed up. And he wants to kill either Tim Drake or Nightwing or Batman. Like He, he being the Joker. The Joker, instance. right. Um, so, so he's, he's perfectly fine to have Nightwing come in there and then he, he knows he's not physically a match for Nightwing. So the next best thing to him is have, well, really he, he would like to kill Batman and them, but really what he wants is Batman to snap and kill him. It's all about that one bad day scenario where. Right. Like a reprise of, of the killing joke. Yeah. Yeah. So having Batman kill the Joker means that Batman is just as insane as the Joker and he's won because he's proven that even the most stalwart in the Joker, the city's view hero, is human and is corruptible. Right. And and so he says a line in there with when Nightwing's uh, beating him up that oh to break the the bat's protege is even better. Um, yeah. Break break by one one uh, degree once of removed. Yeah, yeah. Or one degree of separation is even better. So. It's an interesting plot by the Joker, and obviously we see that it is semi-executed, semi-prevented by the fact that he, he's revived immediately after being 
killed, but killed. but the but not only technically did kill the Joker, he did end the Joker's life. He was willing to. He acted not just willing to. He acted on it. So Nightwing, it, it, assuming this goes forward, I'm not sure. You know, we don't see the future. We get, we read the story. We don't read beyond it much until unless we go back to the story immediately after. But as far as we know, the Nightwing knows he's killed the Joker. He knows he gave in, and we, we see that. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's also going to know that Joker was revived. But, but he, it's it's not the fact that Joker didn't die; it's the fact that he was willing to he he wasn't he snapped. He, yeah. yeah, he was beyond willing. He acted on it, and I'd hope that that reflects in the character going forward. Yeah, I definitely hope we see this, whether it's in the Batman and Detective or whether it's in the Nightwing series. Yeah, and Nightwing he had his own uh, ongoing at this point, right? Yeah, we've covered a couple Nightwing stories. Yeah, I don't remember at this time if it was ongoing or not. Yeah, okay. he's like 50-some issues into his story at this point. Okay, cool, yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to see that deeply affect the character and make him, you know, shaken. Make it something that he battles with and has a deep effect on him. Yeah, so I, I, I really do like this examination of whether they should kill in a, in a special case. Because we, we can agree the Joker is a special case. It definitely. Um, but let's move on to our next point here, which is the plot. Um, so... This is the point where I said we would have some bad things to say. Yes. So um, let's start with the prison breakout story because that's where all all the bad things that are. I have to say are. Same, I think. So in this, so Joker's prison breakout story mixed with the it's mixed with the Joker chaos story, really. Right. The once he gets out, releasing more Joker toxin besides what we'll talk about within the prison, and kind of pushing the Bat family to the limit of hoping that they will kill him. So the the big problem we have is a lot of the Deus Ex Machina, and what, and that just means like convenient plot device, but basically a uh, god from the machine. Yeah, uh, and what that is is it's a for those who aren't familiar with the term, it's it's used to describe when something fortuitous happens for no reason for a character or bad happens for you know obviously this is good for the Joker. So I'll paint the picture real quick for for you guys. So in the slab, which is a prison that houses metahumans. In it, they have all the metahumans have these collars on them, and the collars are like power dampening, supposedly, or something to that effect. It doesn't really work as we see, which is weird. But so they have a nauseating agent for when they break uh, anything, kind of breaks out, any riots or anything like that happens. And that nauseating, of course, means makes them vomit, makes them their stomach hurt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they have a metagene inhibitor. So the metagene inhibitor, the idea behind it is. They, it, in the in the metahumans, of course, they have a metagene. That's what makes them superpowered by birth or chemical reaction or something to that effect. This is inhabits them or inhibits them. Excuse me. So they have they they can't use their powers. Well, when there's a riot so breaks out, they have the two. They they fire both the nauseating agent and the metagene inhibitor, and apparently this is something they've never done before. It didn't sound that way, but also um, the the key point to this was that Joker's blood was in, introduced into the meta inhibitor, and yeah. I believe that is, that is the point at which that combined with the nauseating agent made it turn into Joker gas. Yeah. So, so here, if if sorry with you, John, I'll continue my rant here. Go ahead. My thoughts. You're here. Here's my thoughts. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of Max Landis on this, which is if you guys haven't seen it, Max Landis did this amazing. Uh, hit uh, rethinking of the 
Death of Superman story because that infuriated a lot of people. He go look it up. It does have some language. Yeah, it's like a twenty minute YouTube short, and it's really really good. But it has language, so if you don't want to hear some language, definitely don't listen to it. But it's really good, worth worth watching. Here's what you do: you're in a freaking slab. You're in the slab. That's where all these metahumans are. There's got to be at least one villain in there who has some form of chemical power. We've seen it a ton in super or not Superman in Batman stories where you have villains who everything they touch corrodes or rots or their body's made of acid and they have to wear a special containment suit or you know something to that effect. It would be too easy for the Joker to go to that because in the story the Joker is already running around willy-nilly in the slab. There's a character that can change his face. So he has Joker has this guy change his face to look like the Joker and go sit in the Joker's cell for him. That guy also has corrosive skin, by the way. Yeah. Oh, perfect. You can't tell me that he that the Joker can't take all these corrosively powered because I in my mind the Joker's a master chemist. And that's that's one of the parts of the plot in this story that I really enjoyed is how much of a chemist he is portrayed because he talks to these people to to get the information about the two chemicals. That's how he knows them mixing will, will create Joker. Games. Exactly. So, I mean, and yes, the Joker toxin is in the Joker blood, but he'd have to basically drain himself to, to put enough Joker blood in the system to really affect on a large scale. Now I watch a lot of a uh, lockup on uh, MSNBC. It's, they go inside the prisons and stuff and they don't have everybody at the lunch line at the same time. Cause that's just all sorts of bad news. So he'd have to have it widespread enough that it affects a big population. That includes going in cells. That includes going in rec area, et cetera, et cetera. It makes more sense for me to Joker to go in and take pieces of these chemical-based villains, kind of like Rocket Raccoon in The Guardian of the Galaxy. I need that guy's leg. Yeah. <laughs> great, great line. Um, and combine them, you know, basically set off a riot knowing he can use the the leg or blood or skin of these bad guys and cause chaos with them and expose those chemicals knowing which chemical combinations will make it instead of just saying oh my blood it just seems way too convenient and way too unreal because the amount because it's dissipated one is going to dissipate in the chemical mix and two he'd have to drain ounces and ounces of his own blood to have enough to affect a huge enough area all right, so um, I, w- I want to add on to that because cool. there, there's there's a piece in here that that starts this whole thing that that you didn't bring up, which is he is in solitary, kept away from absolutely everyone until that doctor fabricates the the tumor news, and then they decide that because he's going to die, they think he's going to be docile and he can go interact with the other prisons. Why would you do that? Why would you think that? At no point would you ever should think that. So even if you even if you follow that along, let, let's let's give him that. Okay? Okay. Because that's dumb. a that's a good he's, he's that, dumb. Got that's it. a good Deus Ex Machina, I feel like, to start this story. Because then concur. we can go into what you're talking about, which is him um, which he does because he, the he gets multi man, he kills him a bunch of times, which we'll talk about multi man in a little bit. In the good points, in the good points, um, he kills him a bunch of times till he gets him to do exactly, not exactly, but close enough to what he wants, which lets him get down to Polaris. Once he gets down to Polaris, then multi man is able to free Polaris, who's able to free everybody else, and at that point, he started a prison break. That's all you need to do. This whole 
thing with the Joker gas, not necessary in in the prison. Agreed. Um, because then if after he gets out, he does just regular Joker gas with um, uh, there's a chemi- chemical villain guy that's on his Easter Island uh, crew. Oh yeah, the Alchemist guy, uh, Stormwatch, I think it was. Yeah, or Stormfront. No, no, Stor- Stormwatch or Stormfront, which is he I believe controlled he was, weather. Okay, he controlled weather. Then there's there was another, another guy. guy who was who he used for the chemical portion to put his stuff into the weather that Stormfront was controlling to drop Joker gas across the U.S. and cause an even bigger chaos. So you've got your Joker gas right there. You don't need to do it in the prison. And so that deus ex machina bothered me. But the other part of that, which is Joker going around to the various villains in the slab, figuring out who he needs to use to help him free people from the slab, that was excellent. Oh, agreed 100%. And having the Joker be that intelligent planning plotting you know tactical smart guy is exactly the kind of joker we like to see and yes the joker needs to be a formidable force as far as fighting goes he's wiry he's he's lithe he's skinny you don't want to fight the guy because he does calisthenics all day every day type deal but he he's also brilliant and one uh, going back to the when they let him socialize point, the one point that, about that that makes it okay with me as the start of the story is she, the the security guy, Shiloh, Shiloh. Um, Who they call that? him she most of the yeah, time. Yeah, I know the name. He was a uh, uh, Mister Miracle. Yeah, he would. Uh, will they tell you about that? How many yeah. times in that story? Not like they seventeen, eighteen times they mentioned Miracle. Yeah, miracle. Um, it got really redundant. Yeah, that um, part was annoying. But he speaks up against. Uh, letting joker out so that point there i'm like okay at least somebody is pointing out how what a dumb idea this is so we've got a decent start to this story um so let's let's stop hammering on the uh, mixing of the chemicals <laughs> all right um i think we've we've said our piece about that yes all right so uh, you know let's talk about something we both really liked um the pacing and we've talked about that more than a few times when the pacing really killed a book and this was a six, not counting the, the tie-ins. Yeah, six, I, I say, when you include the tie-ins, the pacing is absolutely horrid. Yeah, yeah. But no, if you don't include the tie-ins, the pacing six, is really yeah, well. It's a six-issue story arc, and at no point do you feel time is wasted. Even the time where Joker is bored sitting on Easter Island felt good. He was still doing stuff. Stuff was still happening. They're still dealing with the Jokerized villains that he left in his wake. And I, I think it was just such a good paced book. And, and I, like I just mentioned, we've... More than a few times, we've mentioned the pacing kills the book. So having a great pacing is always a nice thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I also really like the subplot of Shiloh and the Marshal trying to get the slab back to Earth. Because yeah. part of Joker's um, brilliant scorched plan. Earth plan once he was out <laughs> was to have a meta who could create a black hole. And he sucked the slab through the black hole into some other space. Yeah, and, and so you're you're left with these two agents who are fighting Jokerized people, and then a couple of uh, not Jokerized um, uh, the inmates who also don't want to be stuck there. Yeah, and they're all working together to get the slab back, and that was a really excellent subplot. Yeah, it was a really fun. It didn't feel like wasted time. The time they spent in it, aside from them mentioning every other page that he's Miracle Man or was Miracle Man, or at least every every issue, every issue at least once. Uh, but yeah, so it was, that was fun. That was something that, it was a side story, but it was a side story that really was a lot of fun and, and didn't take away from the main story, having it in the pages. Right, and that leads us right into our next good point here, which is the key element of 
Joker's escape and also getting the slab back, which is Multi Man. <laughs> Multi Man was really funny. So what he is, he's a he's a villain who every time he dies, every time he's killed, he's reincarnated with a new superpower. And I there was something in the story that that I, I the first time I, I I saw it, I'm like, well, that's weird. They said they had him on suicide watch, and I was like, why would he be on suicide? And then I'm like, oh yeah, oh. because every time he dies, his restraints are going to have to be redone because he's he going to have a new, new power. Or, yeah. Now, one thing is, he seemed like kind of a coward, so he really didn't want to die because it hurts a lot. Well, also, Joker killed him like 70 times, and then <laughs> they killed him like another 40 times to get <laughs> something to where he could actually be helpful um, in both in both cases so i did i did enjoy that aspect of it that even though it is such an interesting power it's very difficult to get it exactly the way you want oh yeah and, and it's something he doesn't really have control now the question of course has to be raised though what happens if he comes back with like some super a la wolverine regenerating power or like superman power of invulnerability where he can't die Right, that, that's his that'd story. Be interesting. Ends. Yeah. His story ends then. Well, it doesn't end. It's just he becomes less interesting of a villain. Yeah, I think. he can't die, so he can't change power. So he's. I like the idea of him being kind of having this really awesome power, and he's like a failed supervillain. He tried to do something and got caught, and he's just like, okay, yeah, no. Like the first time he got caught, he got locked away in the slab or something. So he just becomes like a a villain that's used by other villains and really doesn't like it. But he still doesn't. He's not a hero. I mean, that's kind of the story we got here. Yeah. Um, what I would like to see with this character, if because uh, I, I was not familiar with this character before this story, and so I don't know how much he's used in the DCU going forward. Um, but what I would like to see is him rotate through super Heroes. superheroes or super teams based on whatever mutation he gets when he dies. So like he he goes and becomes a villain for the Flash for a while. The Flash accidentally kills him, or one of Flash's villains kills him, or something. He gets a new mutation. He goes and deals. He, he becomes Woman. a foe of Wonder Woman, and then something <laughs> happens there. He becomes a foe of the Justice League, and then something <laughs> happens there. He moves on to, to probably not Batman, but he moves on to like Booster Gold or something. Actually, I just thought about that the, when you said it. Have him be a foe of some superheroes, and then he gets some messed up, really, really strong power that either he can't control or he is not willing to control, and the entire Justice League has to go after him because he has to be a worthy foe for the Justice League. Right. So. He'd have to be like that Superman esque type of power in order to be um, a, a worthy League. of the Justice yeah. League. So then you have the entire Justice League going against him. So it, it culminates in this awesome, huge story. Or maybe like de-age him on one of the ones and he becomes a Titans villain or something. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, see, I, I can think of really fun ways to use this character. And I really do hope that um, post-Flashpoint someone resurrects this character with a really good idea like that. And yeah. we get to see an interesting use of this character. A better, more interesting use, I should say. I really, I did enjoy him in this, though. Uh, did you catch the last panel where Joker is going through the many times of killing him? Yeah. <laughs> that was so messed up. Oh, dude, it was brutal. It was so messed so up. brutal. It was so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they showed that. Yeah, it was so wrong. I love it. 
So, I, so go look that up. I think it's like issue two or three of the miniseries when Joker's trying to get the specific mutation out of him that he wants. He's going through a num- number of different ways of killing him, and the last one that they show uh, in a little montage there is just really wrong. S- sick. Sick. Yeah, sick's a good word for it. All right, so the next point we're going to move on to is Oracle. <laughs> the story starts out so nice for her. Her and Nightwing are having this wonderful day off, and she's they're finding a work-life balance, and things are going good, and everything's looking up, and she steps away from the computer because, you know what, she doesn't... She's spending all of her time watching the Joker and the slab, and that's when when she walks away. That's when it all goes crazy. Yeah, and I was a little disappointed by that. Um, I mean, hopefully, the guilt that she feels at not being there when the Joker started his escape is explored in further stories. I mean, I could see her just totally throwing herself away from social life and going back to the hermit Barbara. Yeah, and that's kind of what I think they will do. But I'm hoping that that there's someone there in her life, like she was there for uh, Cassandra Kane early on in the Batgirl run, trying to encourage her to have a social life. Because that was really interesting to me that this person who, from looking at this story, doesn't really have a social life is like, don't be like me. You know, you need to go have a social life and and go for be it. a normal person. Yeah. If and, you can. And then it's Barbara who r- routinely spends all of her time in the cyber world away from you know, locked away from human interaction. Right. I mean, other than her, her time with, with, uh, with Dick, which is brief respites of, um, relationship type things like making out, you know, sleeping together, that sort of thing. She really doesn't get away from being the eyes and ears of birds of prey, the justice league, bat, bat family, and also, like, the, the amount of demands on her, um, it, it'd be really interesting to see a Nightfall-esque storyline for Oracle where her uh, dedication to this job burns her out. And she just stops being Oracle for a while. She has to go off and be away from being Oracle and, and, and deals with life as Barbara in a wheelchair. And then she comes back and sets up some safeguards in place so that she doesn't have to be the one behind the screen at every single moment. Yeah, or or gets a a protege of sorts. Yeah, so it'll be I, interesting I, you know, to see where that goes. With that, I'd like to see a, another differently able, not necessarily you know paraplegic or or in a wheelchair, but differently abled individual be her protege. Maybe someone who's blind or or has some some hindrance to their their ability and. One, because I love to see diversity. I love to see um, people with disabilities shown in light of it's not destroying them. They aren't their disability. And to have some differently abled superheroes who are, you know, people can look at and say, hey, I know someone in a wheelchair or I'm in a wheelchair and Barbara Gordon is there for me. Or maybe someone with like cerebral palsy or something like that where, you know, physical ability is difficult for them, but their mind is still all there. Yeah. You know, there's actually a comedian. I, I, uh, Josh Blue? No, no. Although Josh Blue's hilarious. This guy named Zach Anner. And he does a lot of stuff with rooster teeth lately, but he's amazingly hilarious. And, and he, I watched an old clip of him where he was, he was on a competition on an Oprah show or for, on the Oprah network and Oprah was asking him questions and he's like, she asked him like, what, what do you want people to know about you? And he said, I want people to get to know me, not the wheelchair. I am, I'm a person beyond the, my cerebral palsy. And it was just one of those like, 
beautiful moment where I'm like, oh, hey, feels. <laughs> oh, hey, emotions. What am I supposed to do with this? It's really worth looking up. Uh, Zach Anner, uh, Z-A-C-H space A-N-N-E-R, Oprah. And on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. But, you know, it's, it'd be, as you said, several palsy. It would just be amazing to see someone who has several, as uh, depicted as having several palsy in comic books, who does something, ama- who, who, you know, is depicted as not being their disease, as you said, being there mentally, being having their mind, having their ability, and being more than just several palsy. And, That'd and be so cool. And there's a lot of ways you can go with that, too, because my understanding of cerebral palsy is it's a, a degenerative disease. A degenerative uh, neurological, I believe. So at some point, you're going to lose even more ability than you currently have. So it'd be interesting to see that explored as well as someone who starts out as capable as you want to start them out with, but then slowly over time starts to have more difficulty. And then you can also have um, other people in the Bat family like Lucius Fox or Kurt Langstrom, like we saw here working on the the cure for the, the Joker gas you know, working on something to help that person out to kind of stabilize them or, or make them uh, able to operate more fully, you know, not necessarily curing because I know what you're saying. You like to see someone who's differently abled and I I agree with you, but just kind of an exploration of something like that, which is not something we see in superhero comics. And, And it would just be such a great thing to see in the, in, as, as I've already said, as a, someone that, Displays the several palsy just as an example, a great example that you brought up, by the way. Great idea, John. <laughs> Full credit, man. Uh, have someone can look say, hey, this this character, this character is a hero who has several palsy. Look at him. He's not his several or she's not her several palsy. She has all these things. She's so interesting and complex. And I can look at them with my if I have several palsy, which. Look, someone I can look up to, someone I can I can relate to as a superhero. You know, uh, Stan Lee, I think it was, says, "Why are all the heroes so pretty? Where are the normal-looking heroes?" You know. Yeah, and that's something we've we've been seeing in the industry more as as it progresses is the idea of representation. Normally, that's color and race um, and that sort of thing. But it would be wonderful to see it also for different abilities, different body types. Um, different appearance levels, uh, and for that, lack that, of a better word, that, that aren't sight gags, a la Punisher. Uh, welcome back, Frank. Right, exactly. The things, the, the actual empowerments of those people, showing yeah. them doing what they do, not not being joke pieces or, or laugh, right. uh, laugh gags, but being actual like, characters that have interesting aspects to them, or background characters, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah agreed. Right there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on bump. to our, our last last piece here, which is the uh, the continuity. And this is where we're going to talk about another tie-in, which is uh, Gotham Knights 22. So in Gotham Knights 22, Babs calls Batman out on alienating his allies, and Batman turns to spoiler. Now, this, I believe, is a direct follow-up to Officer Down, where basically Batman had alienated Barbara, alienated Nightwing, basically Alfred, or Alfred, basically everyone. Yeah, every, everyone around him. Like, Alfred quit. But then also Tim in uh, Robin's Secrets Revealed. Yeah, when he reveals Tim's identity as spoiler. Right, so basically he's got no one to turn to. He's also alienated uh, Huntress from um, that Huntress miniseries we did, I believe. Yeah. Um, so 
it's really interesting to see that how Bat- this in this comic how Batman is very nurturing and tolerant of spoilers, very talkative nature. Which I, I found found fun. She's bantery. Oh yeah, it was entertaining. And, yeah, she's bantery. She's. You know, I wouldn't want to see that for twenty issues, but um, <laughs> it, in one issue it was entertaining. Also, like I I like that. I like you know all la Deadpool where part of their their strategy and tactics is distraction through talking. Except it wasn't directed at who she yeah, was I, fighting. I know, I know. that. I can see where you're going with that now, thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to see that fostered into her combat cell where she banters and talks to the who she's fighting to distract them. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And with a name like Spoiler, I mean, <laughs> you've already kind of got a joke built into the name. Oh, so. yeah. And, and I think that joke's been used more than a few times. It has. <laughs> so I, I think I think that think a good witty take on that would, would, would be... Uh, Helpful. Spider-Man 2, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, why? why the, the, oh, actually, uh, no, that's one of the good ones. It's yeah. Spider-Man 3 that's the... Oh, uh, yeah. No, I wasn't saying Spider-Man 2 is in the movie. I was talking about Spider-Man as oh, well. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> no, we don't talk about that. It's like the prequels. We don't talk about them. It's Matrix 2 and 3. They don't exist. <laughs> I, I like Matrix 2, but <sighs> that's, that's a different discussion. <laughs> a very um, different discussion. <laughs> at, so at the, at the end of the story, we see that the whole family is working together, including Huntress, and the alienation is not discussed. Now, what I would would like to see is that this either discussed going forward or if it's not going to be discussed that we get back to the bat family being a family because we seem to go through these cycles of oh bruce alienates everyone it's now just bruce and everyone else is off doing their own thing and then something happens and they come back together and then that lasts for a while and then we get more alienation like death of the family recently and yeah i guess it's not so recent now a couple years ago um in post flashpoint so i mean what do you, what are your thoughts on that i yeah i would like to see less of a cycle and more things happen like we did get a little bit of in death of the family them coming back together even tim now they didn't have or not tim uh uh jason in death of the family at the end of death of the family that's when the, everyone was mad at bruce death of Death of the family that's the one where joker they, we don't know necessarily if joker knows everyone's identities I'm trying to remember now because it's been a been a little while since we covered that. I thought they were kind of like coming back together at the end. Even like you know, Jason was at the mansion. Yes, but I think they were coming back together in spite of Bruce. Okay, I feel like everyone was mad at Bruce for keeping information from them, which you know he does a lot. Yeah, Um, and they were kind of rallying amongst themselves, but everyone was mad at Bruce. So back to the original point thing because I'm all sorts of sideways on that. Yeah, (laughs) which happens. I like the idea of having a few characters as outliers, part of the Bat family, but not necessarily on good terms. I like I like the idea of Huntress as a loner character. Yeah, I was going to say we can refer back to our Huntress story, the the Huntress miniseries, uh, Call for Blood, Cry uh, for Blood, Cry for Blood. I think it was um, where we had that conversation about. Yes, it's it's interesting to see a character that's kind of on the fringe, but it gets old after a while. I, I think having her on the fringe, but not on hostile terms, would be better. A better suited for her character. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. That would like be she, she's she's not Bat Family. So kind of like what agent. she was used here. Yeah, kind of like what she was. Used. I think this is a pretty good use. She's on good terms with the various heroes, but she's not necessarily working. They don't agree on methods, but she's still able to operate in Gotham space, not counter to the Bat Family. But they do have kind of a you know, hey, don't kill. <laughs> we have our rules. Follow the rules. Even if you don't want to work with us or share information or whatever. Right. 
So I, I mean, this bringing back the family together, I think, I think it, it's something that needs to happen, where the, the they're on at least operating terms. You know, maybe not on completely good terms, but Robin still, you know, works with directly with Batman. Batgirl is still working. well. He did until Secrets Revealed. Yeah, until Secrets Revealed, but. Having a good working foundation where it's less hostility, less like daytime soap opera drama. I, I want to get away from that in the Bat family. We don't need the soap opera crap. <laughs> That's what the X-Men are for. <laughs> okay, you, you shut your mouth. Okay? You <laughs> dirty, dirty man. Uh, no, I, I like I like the idea of having them at least on good working terms. Maybe not necessarily good friendship terms because Bruce isn't exactly a friendly guy. But at least good working terms. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And um, there's one more piece to this. In one of the Robin tie-ins, Alfred spoke of returning to Bruce or Batman's employ. So that'll be interesting to see going forward because he's asked why he's at Brentwood, why he's on loan to Tim at Brentwood. And he goes, well, I was here helping him get settled in, but it's about time that I return. So I, I, I think that if they do bring him back, which I'm sure they do because Alfred always comes back, he would have to set lay down some ground rules. Yeah, I definitely feel like if we are going to bring the family back together, there needs to be some hashing out of what happened in Officer Down and what happened in Secrets Revealed. Yeah, I mean, ha- have you been watching Gotham much? Um, I watched through, I think, the first three episodes of season two, and then uh, Supergirl started, and I, I dropped Gotham just because I, I couldn't add another show and I wasn't really enjoying it. I, I like the relationship that Alfred has, and I don't know if you see it in the first two episodes. It kind of gets more e- explored and then less explored. It's less focused on. At the very beginning of season two, he was kind of a mentor, and he was a little bit annoyed with Bruce because Bruce wasn't taking it seriously, and so he's trying to teach him to take it seriously. Okay, then, yeah, that's part. I like that I like that kind of Alfred where he's like, I'm still your, I'm, I'm your friend, but I'm going to make you deal with things that you don't necessarily want to deal with. Yeah, and that's a good role for Alfred. Yeah, he's more humanizing, I think, to Batman than anything. Grounding. Yeah, grounding. That's a good word. Thank yeah. you. And he's very grounding. I like that. So I think that's probably, for me at least, and it sounds like for you as well, that's a good, that we consider that a good use of Alfred. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. All right, so that's pretty much all the talking points that we had. So why don't we jump into rating here? So Dylan, why don't you okay let uh, us know your thought, final uh, thoughts, and a rating? You know what? Just we're just doing the the main six. The the tie-ins exist, but they're not nece- they're really not necessary at all to the story. There's a few that add stuff, definitely. As we mentioned, the uh, what one was it? Uh, uh, Gotham Knights twenty two, Action Comics seven eighty four, and I forget which one has the Polaris stuff. Yeah. In it. So those are really good. Other ones, not so much. I want to say it's a Justice League one with yeah, Polaris, probably, but, but I, I don't remember which one. But regardless, you know, I really enjoyed the story. The pacing was fun. It was a really fun story. It, it had things I didn't like, of course, but overall, I really enjoyed it. I have to give it a four out of five bad ranks. Okay. Um, after talking about it and just kind of after putting aside my issues with the plot. I think I'm going to have to agree with you at four out of five batterings, but man, that Deus Ex Machina stuff at the beginning almost ruined this story. Yeah. That, that's what kept me from going higher, but everything around the Deus Ex Machina kept me from going lower. Yeah. I, I definitely have to agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that is continuity um, based, which I, I definitely did enjoy. And I hope that it's, that it, this continues going forward, that we continue to get, um, 
the, those things that we talked about examined, you know, progressed. Um, and so, yeah, four out of five is a, is a good ranking. It makes our overall ranking four out of five batterings. Hashtag bring back multi-man. <laughs> there you go. Get it trending, guys. All right, guys. If you like what we do, like what we have to say, think we're crazy and completely off our rocker, leave a comment on the bat, the episode's page on the BatmanUniverse.net. BatmanUniverse.net, your place for all things Batman. And if you like our style, um, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we do another comic book podcast that is a variety of um, superhero stories, non-superhero stories, Marvel, DC, independent, um, and it's called Super Arc Independent. Re- super Independent. I, I you're you're going to make that go, aren't you? Yeah, Super Independent. <laughs> Stop ma- trying to make Fletch happen. <laughs> Fletch is going to happen. Um, uh, it is Arc Reactions Podcast, which you can find at arcreactionspodcast.blogspot.com. As we mentioned, be sure to check out the BatmanUniverse.net for all things Batman news, reviews, podcasts, and everything under the sun that's Batman-related. All right, we'll jump into the credits here. I'll do the really nasty one, uh, so you can start there with uh, the miniseries. <laughs> all right, so first we have Joker's Last Laugh, 1 through 6, which ran from December 2001 to January 2002. I did not realize this was weekly until yeah. I was putting that together. Yeah, that's kind of it's interesting they did a weekly with it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right, that was written by Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty. The artists were Pet Woods. I think it's supposed to be Pat Woods. Pat Woods or Pete Woods. Or Pete Woods, yes. It's thank Pete you. Woods for issue one. Marcos Martin for issue two. Walter McDaniel for issue three. Andy Kuhn for issue four. Ron Randall for five. And Rick Burchett for episode issue six. And that's also something I did not notice upon reading it. That Because I think because I was reading with all the tie-ins, so I was used to all the art changes, that I did not notice that it was six different artists. Yeah, me either. Which is kind of interesting. I uh, The editors were Nachi Castro for the assistant editor, and Matt Eilson was the editor. And Joker's Last Laugh, Secret Files, and Origins in December 2001. This had many writers, Scott Beatty, Chuck Dixon, Dan Curtis Johnson, Jerry Ordway, and Jai Nitz. The artists were Pete Woods, J.H. Williams III, Leonard Kirk, Pete Krause, Amanda Connors, or Amanda Connor, excuse me, and the editors, Nachi Castro is the assistant, Ivan Cohen and Mike McAvini and Mike Carlin, or excuse me, those were the regular editors, and Mike Carlin was the executive with Jeanette Kahn as the editor-in-chief. Thanks for listening. Be sure and join us next episode, which will be number 140. I think it's a Catwoman one. It's a Catwoman one.